You're listening to The Unifying Call, where we share the voices of our hospital, clinicians and leaders. These are stories to inspire kindness and courage in the face of COVID, presented by Western Health. I'm Cathy Somerville. Dr. Andy Tagg is an emergency physician at Western Health and has a special interest in paediatrics. He's a co-founder of Don't Forget the Bubbles, a group of clinicians whose work is recognised internationally. They aim to make sense of information in paediatric medicine for clinicians. Their summaries of the literature on COVID and how it impacts children are playing a leading role around the world at the moment. Andy was also a medical officer on cruise ships for more than four years, but more on that later in the episode. I began my discussion by asking how he felt in mid-March as coronavirus began to arrive in Australia. This interview was recorded in mid-May. I had a lot of friends in the UK had already seen what was potentially going to happen. And for me, what I really wanted to do is be part of the Western Health Organisation, trying to prepare for what might happen over here. Um, and I could see my directors and, and deputies getting the the emergency department in place. And I wanted to be uh, able to do something myself. And really, I just made sure I was fully up to date with the current recommendations. But because I have a special interest in paediatrics, I really wanted to be up to date with what was happening in the paediatric world. There's a lot less children who've been uh, affected by SARS-CoV-2. And so it's relatively easy to keep up with the data and all the papers coming out of Wuhan and Dubai at the start of the of the pandemic. And so when there are only just three or four sets of data coming out, myself and the team at Don't Forget the Bubbles decided we'd just take a look at that data. And since then, 150 plus papers have um, been published in about six to eight weeks covering the entirety of paediatrics and COVID. So... Myself and the, and the team basically have gone through every single paper to look at the data, looking at things like transmission rates, um, the type of symptoms that children might have, the type of complications they might have. And we've collated all that data um, in a faster, more agile way than anyone ever could do if they were doing a um, meta-analysis or peer review paper. We put them up on the website. And since doing that, that's been taken up by the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health in the UK who reference our data. The World Health Organization now has started referencing our data as of last week. Because as a team of sort of eight people, we can do things that heavy, top heavy organizations can't do. And can you tell us about the mix of expertise within that review team? So within the team, we've got a, a mix of uh, infectious diseases physicians and, and trainees, as well as infectious diseases consultants. The majority of people are jobbing registrars who have a bit of spare time but are really keen on evidence-based medicine and reviewing the literature. What was it that brought you to the attention of the UK experts? We're very vocal on social media, I think would be a, a good way of putting it. So we run a yearly conference and last year we'd invited Russell Viner, who's the president of the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health, to come and speak to us. And so we had an in. And no one else was doing this type of data trawl. So we were able to get the data out within a week of it being published, whereas some of the colleges were lagging behind. And by the time two weeks into the pandemic and the publication process had hit, the college realized that it was much easier just to attach themselves to what we were doing than trying to sort of reinvent the wheel and do it all themselves. And you mentioned just before that the World Health Organization is also now referencing your work. 
Can you tell us about that? What we've been looking at is some of the data regarding transmission of SARS-CoV-2 in children with regard to returning to school. And we know there's very little evidence that children are super spreaders, but there's a huge worry amongst parents and that sending children back to school in Victoria is going to make things much, much worse when it comes to uh, spread of coronavirus. And so we really had a close look at all the data and found that there is no evidence that there's an increased risk to, certainly to children, though we're not so sure about their parents. And the because of our links with the Royal College and the UK Research and Innovation Group in the UK, the World Health Organization, Health Organization uh, latched onto our data as well. And again, because we, we've been providing the sort of the back end analysis that they just don't have the time to do, then um, they're more than happy to endorse the work we've done. With the hyperinflammatory syndrome, what's the correct term for this one? So if you're in Australia or the UK, it's uh, currently um, paediatric multisystem inflammatory syndrome time related or time associated with coronavirus. If you're in the US, who decided to change their own acronym, it's uh, multisystem inflammatory syndrome related to coronavirus. And really, it's only been discussed since about the beginning of May, where there were eight cases highlighted in the UK through the Evelina Hospital. Of those eight cases, seven discharged relatively well. Four of them were tested positive for coronavirus. Since then, there have been two further papers coming out, one from uh, France, which had 17 cases, and one from Italy, which had a further 10. And what we can see, that it appears to be a, a syndrome of illness similar to Kawasaki's disease, so a, a type of autoimmune inflammatory response that we can't really identify that may or may not have been triggered by the virus that leads to an overwhelming inflammatory response with symptoms similar to Kawasaki. So these children would get high temperatures, rashes, they get conjunctivitis, they get skin changes, and they may go on then to develop coronary artery aneurysms, which is one of the biggest risks and complications. How many people, how many children have died now of this syndrome? Uh, that we know of, that have been published, there have been two children. So one that I'm aware of in the UK and one that I'm aware of in the Italian group. Although we know there's a large data set coming out of the US that has not yet been published. So once we have that data, we're about to have a much closer look at what's going on. Initially, I guess there was a feeling that children were escaping pretty much unscathed with coronavirus, because in fact, they do kind of escape COVID, don't they? They don't really tend to be getting COVID-19 so much. Absolutely. I think the number of children, we certainly those we're seeing at Sunshine are uh, asymptomatic carriers. Their relatives have tested positive and they've been tested as part of the track and trace regime. And certainly looking out of the data out of Wuhan, most of the children that have been affected are completely asymptomatic. And that's partly one of the worrying factors. We don't know how many of these children are just wandering around the streets with the disease. And we know there's a cohort study done in Iceland where pretty much 16%, I think, of the population were tested. And of those, there are a large number of asymptomatic children. I think once it'd be interesting to see what the Victorian data shows, I think very few children actually would have been tested in the drive-throughs and Bunnings and around in the shopping centres, unfortunately. So we won't get a, a great sense of the data. But certainly my communication with people throughout Australia is that there have been 
as far as I'm aware, no incredibly sick children through so far in Australia. So the Kawasaki-like syndrome with the various names, depending on where you live, is that something, though, that could be much more dangerous to children, potentially? It could be, but then we're talking about 1% of 1%, if anything. And so the chance of a child themselves having um, SARS-CoV-2 is incredibly low already, and then the chance of them that having this disease is much lower again. So we're talking, you know, infinitesimally small chances. Does that make it then very difficult, though, for the paediatricians and the ED physicians to recognise it? To see it? Well, I think one of the cardinal symptoms is a prolonged fever for more than five days, So, as it would be with, the, with complete Kawasaki's disease. So we're very cautious for any child that comes in with symptoms suggestive of Kawasaki's disease to think about testing and admitting. When you were looking ahead as an adult emergency physician as well, what were you worried about at the time when you look back to, say, mid-March? I was looking at what was happening in the UK and seeing doctors becoming overwhelmed by the number of patients coming in requiring ventilatory supports. And you had seen news in the US and in the UK with patients in, in corridors being treated, not enough story about not enough ventilators. And even here in Western Health, we talked about what would happen if we ran out of ventilators and ICU beds. And that was very much on my mind, and how we would support our junior staff overnight, for instance, if they there was an overwhelming need for senior decision-making the, at the nighttime and how we provide a, a nighttime service in the emergency department. And that doesn't seem to have, have held out. Of friends I've had in England who have had, because the rates of, of carriage seem to be so much higher, they've had every patient they've had come into their department has been swapped. And it was, my concern was whether it would be under, overwhelmed just for the requirements for isolation beds. But again, Western Health has been really good at getting those the right patients to the right beds and de-escalating and de-isolating patients as quickly as possible. What are you hearing from your colleagues overseas in the worst case scenarios that they might be facing, some of them? I've had friends who've been intubated themselves overseas. I've had friends who've, as healthcare workers, have got long-term um, morbidity already because of they've caught coronavirus at the beginning of the outbreak and are now exhausted and can't perform their jobs. I'm concerned that there seems to be an undue increase of healthcare associated deaths in the black African minority ethnic population in the UK. And I know from when I worked in England that a large proportion of healthcare is provided by that group. And there's obviously there's the gradual erosion of the NHS over the years is a big concern of mine. It's one of the reasons why I left, I suppose. But that it's relied on goodwill for such a long time. How is it going to cope when it does get fully overwhelmed? And certainly I've known of hospitals in London which have run out of oxygen because they were putting everyone on high flow or intubating patients. Or, and now that things are opening up and we're seeing pictures on the news of people getting on tubes and trams and buses and pouring out of those because they have to work. There's no other way of getting to work. I worry for my friends who are going to be dealing with that on a daily basis. The friends who were intubated, are they recovering or are still very unwell? So the ones are the ones I know are now recovering, um, but we don't know what the long-term consequences are going to be. And I believe that after SARS, the SARS that hit in the 2000s, was it 2003, I think? Yeah, 2002, 2003. Yeah, that it, there was quite a bit of trauma among healthcare workers in places like Toronto 
where they were really hit hard. So I guess that post-traumatic stress disorder is possibly what it amounts to. Is that right? I, I don't think we've even really considered that, to be honest. I think we're so entrenched in what we're doing at the moment and just being in the present that we haven't had the opportunity to look forward because people are just still on that, flat, trying to flatten the curve, you know, slow down the sort of trajectory, and people haven't considered that sort of corona fatigue that we're all going to feel, that compassion fatigue, the anticipatory anxiety that we've had over here in Australia, I think, where we've all been ramping up for the last six, seven weeks, and we've all had this huge rush of adrenaline while we're trying to get things organised, and that's throughout all levels of the organisation. And... We're grateful that that tsunami wave hasn't crashed upon us, but that daily level of stress and anxiety really takes its toll on people. It's just like, you know, running a marathon on a daily basis. And I can certainly, and it's not just those doctors, it's the cleaners, the orderlies, the nursing staff, all the way up through to the executives. We've got to make some really challenging high-level decisions on a daily basis. Are you concerned that because... Australia has been very effective so far in flattening the curve, that people might take that for granted and it might have a big backslide? I think different states seem to be doing things differently. I think one of the concerns that I've heard is that, you know, why are we doing all this isolation when we haven't had so many cases? But realistically, the reason is we're isolating so we don't get as many cases. And it's very difficult for some people to understand. And I think Dan Andrews has done a great job here in Victoria, really jumping on all these little small outbreaks as they happen. And some of those have been local to us, but we've not seen a huge surge of patients coming in because people are being traced very quickly. Now we don't have the huge influx of tourists around and that sort of mobile population. I'd like to think that things will settle down a little bit. You must be very pleased to be in Australia at this point rather than the United Kingdom. Definitely. I think you know the weather's much nicer over here most of the time and certainly the economy seems to be a lot more stable over here. And without being hit so hard by COVID. Very much I so. Um, I guess coming back to the illness in children that we talked about before, so what are some of the ways that's being studied at the moment as far as you're aware? For treatments, you mean? Or? Yeah, or for understanding that illness more so. so. It's very difficult to get randomised control trials going in children and certainly very, very difficult to get uh, drug trials going in children when there are so few cases. And so when you're looking at the US data for things like remdesivir, which only involve 30 to 60 patients in the adult population over a time period, getting that same number of children is next to impossible. So we're very much going on data from uh, the CDC and WHO have been using for the Ebola virus, for instance. Um, from the HIV specialists and some of the antivirals they've used. But because we've had so few cases, every case has been treated as an individual. One of the things, for instance, when we're talking about um, the multi-inflammatory syndromes is that if we're thinking it may be like Kawasaki's disease, should all these children be getting aspirin as part of the treatment, because that's part of the treatment in Kawasaki's, or should they be getting intravenous immunoglobulin? And certainly most of the cases that have been treated in Europe so far have been getting those treatments. But we don't know if they're getting better because of those treatments or they would have been get, those children would have been getting better anyway. It's very, very, very difficult to tell. So with Kawasaki disease, I assume that some children do die from that disease. Is that right? They can do, unfortunately, or they can die because of the complications, the coronary artery complications of those disease. And I read something, maybe this is not correct because I'm not a clinician, that there's part of it that can be, am I right, confused with sepsis? Yeah, I think there's a lot of 
overlap between sepsis. So sepsis is very, very difficult to differentiate at one point in time, especially very early on. But there are some features such as some of the rashes that are involved, the high temperatures, the runny noses, the peeling lips and tongues. Those can be con very confused for sepsis. So any child that we see that has potentially does have sepsis, we'll treat as if they're septic, just like any treatment, any child that we're concerned about Kawasaki's disease would also treat for sepsis at the same time. So all these children get broad spectrum antibiotics, they get blood cultures, they get swabs, they get uh, blood tests sent off for SARS-CoV and other bacterial pathogens. Do you have any colleagues in America that you've been liaising with at all? I do. I've been certainly the the ICU PICU community in the states have been keeping a very close eye on their data again. That's the pediatric the intensive, intensive care. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, and we're keeping a close eye on what's going on over there. But it's got to the point where most clinicians are too busy to be able to actually publish any of their data, which is a scary thought. But also, what's happening is a lot of pediatric intensive care units are being repurposed to be able to upscale to look after adults or certainly older children. So in the UK, most PICUs now are covering adults down sort of in the sort of 17, 18 to 20, up to about 25. The people who are in the Don't Forget the Bubbles group, these reviewers who are from various countries, I guess it must be quite unusual to talk to them when some of them are reviewing from, say, the UK, where it's much more in their face, I guess, compared with Australia. Which other countries are represented? So we mainly have the UK and Australia and New Zealand. We have people who's providing us some data from Italy and France, the US and Canada. But the core group are essentially the, U the UK and here in Australia. And so when we get online together and have webinars and, and meetings as to what the situation is, it's fascinating to hear what the, the differences are Currently, one of the big concerns in the UK, for instance, are how do we continue to practice social isolation in the waiting room, for instance? It's very easy in a, when children aren't going to school, but when you have any numbers return to normal, you're trying to keep 20 or 30 kids apart from each other in a hospital waiting room. That's a tough thing to do. It's very difficult. How do you get them going on to after-school clubs? What do we do about those children who need to be admitted to the ward? What do you do about doing testing on children, which is, you know, essentially it's a quite an uncomfortable, painful test. I don't know if anyone's had it, but... I, I have had it. The swab for <laughs> 10 seconds in your mouth, that's not too bad. But trying to keep a four or five-year-old still where that probe goes up the nose, it's uh, very, very difficult. So we have to assume sometimes that children have the virus without actually being able to test them because it's going to subject them to a lot more hospital anxiety and stress if we do go ahead and test them. So then you would support the proposition that the actual number of cases worldwide are far higher? Absolutely. In adults and children? Definitely. Yeah. So you've obviously got an unusual insight into some aspects of the pandemic through your cruise ship medical practice background. I'm sure that everyone is asking you this. So having worked as a medical officer on cruise ships for more than four years, I understand? Yeah, so I, when I left the NHS, I decided to retrain and I was going to become an anaesthetist, but I decided... I'd go away and study, and I started working for Princess Cruises, and I did that for four and a half years, sailing around the world many, many times. And one of those times is certainly, so I start, landed in Australia you know, when the swine flu started, but also was sailing around Japan and China while we were having some more nasty influenza pandemics, uh, epidemics then as well. So when all crew and passengers would be swabbed and thermal scanned before they could go ashore. 
So what kind of measures can a cruise ship take to try to prevent these kinds of things? Well, what we would normally do on board is certainly there's a degree of social isolation that can happen. So what happens on every cruise ship, there will always be patients who have got influenza or gastroenteritis on board. And the earlier we can identify those, the faster we can basically get them to stay in their cabins. And it's a lot easier staying in a cabin where you have food being brought to you, someone else doing your washing and someone else doing your cleaning, than trying to look after yourself on your own at home sometimes when you've got to carry on with those sort of normal activities of daily living. We'd encourage strict hand hygiene. Um, but unfortunately, people lie. You know, if you come on your holiday, the last thing you want to do is be locked in your cabin instead of exploring Osaka or Skagway. And so we would get outbreaks of small degrees of respiratory illness on a regular basis. And as soon as the numbers hit a certain peak threshold, we would have to report that to the local authorities. So in Australian waters, as soon as 2% of the passengers and or crew um, had an influenza-like illness or a gastroenteritis, that would have to be reported. How would you have felt if you were on the Ruby Princess or the Diamond Princess? would have been a pretty tough job, I think. It would have been exhausting. So a ship of that size has two doctors and three or four nurses. Um, and those two doctors are on call 24 hours a day, and they would have already been working for four or five months of that contract, not being able to go ashore. And the same with the nursing staff, they would rotate. And it's fine if you're just visiting, doing cabin visits, but these ships also had critically unwell patients in their onboard uh, medical centres, which can ventilate patients, you can put central lines in, you can do all those things that a small country hospital can do and a little bit more. But it still requires manpower and woman power. And that really is an exhausting prospect. And so you must have really felt then for your colleagues absolutely. who would have been in that situation. And I think what the press never really considered is the impact on the crew who would still have to continue working. The crew, I think, is something worth really discussing because am I right that the crew might be some hundreds of staff in some of these huge ships and in much more minimalist conditions? Absolutely. So if you're a, you know, a galley boy on these crews, you might be eight members of staff to a cabin that hasn't got any daylight, you're in bunk beds, and you would maybe be allowed off normally, you know, once every 10 days. Or if you're a cabin crew, then you rely on tips for, mo- for most of your wages. Um, and you you won't be able to get those if your patients are sort of self-isolating you or for a restaurant staff. It's a real problem. And crew will normally do a 10-month contract, and then have, so the medical staff on board would be their general practitioner. And there was a, I'd imagine there'd be a marked increase in mental health concerns in these people who essentially have no outlet. There's no social life. There. They've, got a social, they've got to self-isolate as well when they're on board the ships. So they can't even, you know, hang around with their friends. And the ships are not designed to allow social isolation below So how, they couldn't, in fact, have any isolation, could they? Which is no. no wonder then that so many of them would have become sick. So really their circumstances would have been arguably a lot worse than for the paying passengers. Absolutely. Because just same as, as military barracks as well, you know, it's those when lots of people are all in one place together. Just like we've had outbreaks of meningitis back in the 80s and 90s in military barracks and in boarding schools, these things can spread very, very quickly. Coming back to the cruise ships, I've seen some studies, I'm not sure how valid they are, where they've used the cruise ship environment as a bit of a test of certain elements with regard to coronavirus and COVID-19. Is that to do with it being a contained population? Certainly, I think that's what they were going to do with the Ruby. Um, and with the Diamond Princess as well, in that 
that contained population, you know exactly who's on board. You can access fully access their medical records and their data. And you know contact tracing is relatively straightforward. You know who's been where and in what countries. And so when they were isolated and essentially offshore in, in Japan, they could keep a very close eye on what was happening with individual passengers. And what about the actual cruise medical literature? Is there such a thing? And there if, is. If not, there should be, not I would seen, think. There is. I have not seen anything published at the moment. And Could be a gap there. I Well... I would imagine that no cruise ship industry would want any data published. But I think you can see oh, that it would be is, very important. It's absolutely in you know in the, in the public's best interest for these things to for these things to be published. But whilst there are potentially criminal proceedings going on, for instance, against the Ruby, then these things there will be no publications regarding this, unfortunately. And I don't know how rigorous the epidemiological data and the and the sort of testing was done at the time. I think it'd be wonderful to be able to get and have a look at that data. But um, because, the, you know, there's, most of the cruise industry is run by three or four big companies, it'd be very easy to be able to collect all that information and work out if there's a particular type of passenger, for instance, that's at higher risk, whether that's regard to their ethnic background, their age, their place of birth, their medical comorbidities, or where they've sailed to. I don't know how useful that data will be when it's all pared down, you know, in 10, 20 months' time. Mm. And have you been on the Ruby Princess and the Diamond Princess? I was senior doc on the Diamond. I remember it very well. And they've all got very much similar design and they're beautiful ships. And I was looking at my photos from those days and thinking, there, but for the grace of God. Australia's done a wonderful job of flattening the curve. And I think what I would like to make sure is that as... um, things get relaxed around the state and around the country, that we don't become complacent. We forget to start socially distancing ourselves. We forget to wash our hands. We go out to the pub you know, with 200 other people on a Friday night. doesn't mean we can't go out to the beach and have friends and have, you know, have a picnic with families, but we've got to be aware that there are still a large number of vulnerable people in the population who don't have those luxuries, who may have to shield themselves. Um, because they're undergoing chemo or radiotherapy, they still have to stay at home and stay socially isolated. We have to be aware that I think that the whole lockdown period has been incredibly challenging for a large number of the population in regards to their mental health. And loneliness is a huge problem. We have a large number of doctors working at Western who've come from overseas, who may have families in much, much riskier situations than they are over here. And they come into work, they're happy that everything's working over here, and then they go home to their own houses when they're on their own. And I think that's something that, as seniors, we are actively trying to support and look out for those individuals. So tell me a little bit more about that. So certainly one third of the emergency uh, trainees and junior doctors are often UK grads who've come over for a couple of years to see what the system is like. And their parents or their friends are working in the UK and they may be much more at risk. They're exposed to coronavirus. And they having may have challenges just keeping up in touch or trying to feel part of their family's lives. And then they're reading the UK press as to what's been happening in, this, in England, that anyone over the age of 70 has been asked to essentially keep away from people for up to you know two to three months at a time. They're coming into their work and thinking, well, Coronavirus doesn't seem too bad after all because we are managing to sort of really reduce the chance of anything happening over here. 
and then they're going home and they're scrolling through their social media feeds and keeping an eye out, looking at what's happening in England or in Europe and the US. And there's that degree of fear and panic that they, and the worry that they can't do anything when they're away from their family. And it's that there's a distorted reality of what's going on over there and what's going on over here. And it's it can be really tough for those people then thinking, I've had a number of doctors who've decided to quit to go back to be with their families because their you know their elderly parents might be at risk and they need to be there to help them and sometimes it's partners that will say i'm socially isolating but you're going to work how am i going to manage when i go to these things they'd much rather be with their families back in the uk and it's a tough have any of them had family members who've become very sick not that i'm aware of not certainly none of them have disclosed to me but i'm sure it has happened so when they go back, then they can't return? No. So at the moment, is that affecting your staffing as well, so this we, issue of travel? I think what we will have is a lot of... We actively recruit from the UK, and what will happen is when the new raft of registrars come in in August, we're going to have, as will all hospitals, have a challenge. And so I know the Postgraduate Medical Council of Victoria are looking into how they can facilitate things throughout all specialities and how they can improve the number of trainees in post, but we also want to make sure those trainees are fit for purpose and they're doing a job they want to do. And so I think it'd be very difficult to come over from the UK when flights are a challenge. Perhaps you may not want to leave your family. And then when you arrive in Australia, you'll probably still have to socially isolate for two weeks when you don't know anyone in the country. That's that's tough. And I think that's something that we as recruiters and then are trying to ease by having regular conversations online, face-to-face online, rather than over the phone that we used to. So at least we're human beings at the end of the the internet, rather than just a a name at the end of an email. Do you think Zoom is still going to be very popular afterwards? Absolutely. I think it's a wonderful thing. From our point of view, we've seen attendance at teaching massively increase because it's easy to to zoom into a teaching session from your bedroom or from your kitchen. We've seen uh, people are turning up on time. We've had grand rounds where... The they're turning people, up on time. You mean they're turning up to their computer yeah, on turning time? turning up to their computer on time. <laughs> to absolutely. their phone or... Yeah, absolutely. It's very easy to do. But we're having, you know, grand rounds where you're getting two or three times in all of attendance. We're running a, a course in a couple of days' time through Don't Forget the Bubbles, which was originally going to be a face-to-face course in Birmingham for two days teaching. And what's the subject of that? So this one would be a sort of minor injuries and illness in children. And we were going to have 50 people turn up, physically turn up. And because we're now doing it as a online education experience we've had 600 sign up instead <laughs> so it's a from our point of view that's a wonderful thing although you have to be mindful of what you're wearing not having children crawl through the door and <laughs> at the end of the during the event have but you I, had any funny stories at home during all of this i think when i do college meetings most of the time at least one of us are there with a child or a dog or a cat on our laps <laughs> have you got any of the, i know you've I've got, got children i've got children and a cat so i try and keep those out of there I think my top tip for Zoom meetings is to make sure your cat, your microphone is muted at all times unless you're going to speak and then just press the space bar to speak and be mindful of what you're wearing and what the reflections are on <laughs> behind you in windows. And who's walking past in Absolutely, the background. Yeah. yeah, very funny. Well, good luck with everything here at the emergency department, Andy, and thank you for your time today. Thanks, Kathy. Thank you. This has been The Unifying Call, presented by Western Health. Please share this episode with five colleagues so these stories can reach and inspire more people. For more information, follow the links in the podcast description.